This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 20th of March 2022 at 10am CET. The mayor of the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol says thousands of citizens have been forcibly deported to Russia. Once in Russia, they have been sent to remote areas. There are concerns they'll be used as propaganda. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky will speak to Israel's parliament later on. It's understood he will invoke his Jewishness and compare events with the Second World War. And President Zelensky has urged Switzerland to do more to crack down on Russian oligarchs. Via an audio link to a rally in Bern, Mr Zelensky said Swiss banks were where money of the people who unleashed this war lay. Switzerland has fully adopted EU sanctions against Russian individuals and entities. In other news, there are reports that at least four people have been killed after a car drove into a crowd preparing for a carnival in Belgium. Local media say the car drove into the people at high speed without braking as they prepared for a procession in strepi Brakenyi in the southwest of the country. South Korea's president-elect is to move the presidential office from the Blue House to the Defence Ministry compound. Yoon Suk-yeol will be breaking with decades of tradition in relocating the office to a more accessible place. The Blue House in Seoul will be open to the public. His announcement has been greeted with mixed reactions from South Koreans over the $40 million price tag and the inconvenience. And a biologist says she has built up a thriving forest fire prevention service across the west of the United States by deploying a herd of goats to graze on anything that could catch fire. The goats, according to this weekend's NZZ newspaper, eat up to three tonnes of combustible material every day, reaching up to three metres on their hind legs. Their owner, Lanny Malmberg, says the 1,200 goats have contracts for weed control, fire fuel load abatement, reseeding, watershed management and are better than any fire department. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. It's time now to cross from a beautiful spring-like morning here in London to the sunshine of Zurich as we can join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for this week's Monocle on Sunday. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Emma. Of course, there is a literally a burning question this morning. Yes. Since you read that story in the yes. NZZ, how many goats have you purchased? 1,200. I bought the lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having them all shipped over and I think we need to talk outfits. Uh, well, we definitely need to talk outfits. I was sort of intrigued, though, that they reach a height of up to three metres. That's a very large goat. Or are they, are they piggybacking? No, or they're... Go- they're backing as doing the case ha- may be. We're talking hind legs here. I think they're quite big beasties, though. I was quite interested in the fact that they can each eat three... Well, I don't know if they can each eat three tonnes of combustible material or whether it's a group effort that gets it through, because that's a lot. I, I don't want to see that <laughs> three-ton goat. <laughs> Sounds like a cement mixer. <laughs> 1,200 cement mixers currently en route to the United Kingdom. Listen, there's so much scope to what we could do with goats because um, I've, I've taken the time to go onto their website. They have a wonderful website where they talk about all the things that they can do. They do, they do um, reseeding. They do water management. They do weed control. I mean, you could do absolutely anything with them that requires a kind of a group effort in an open space. I do have to bring Juliet in here as well because you do also. Juliet has Trinidadian roots. Also, there's there's a curry that could be involved Absolutely. as well, right? Curried goat, and then you could just use the uh, the fur maybe to fur. Do goats have fur? Yes, yeah, to, fur. to make lovely sweaters mm. for the uh, monocle shop. Or slippers as well. Fuzzy slippers. Uh, Juliet, you're in charge of cooking 1,200 goats. I will cook the three-ton curry goat. Three-ton goat. (laughs) Okay, we're going to do the rest of the program, maybe in a French accent, maybe in a Trinidadian accent. Monocle on Sunday starts now.
Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brillet. Coming up on today's program here in Seyfeld in Zurich, my guest today, Juliet Lindley and Marcus Sugar. They're both here with reviews. I'm very happy to say that Juliet is right across with Good morning, Juliet. Bonjour, Tyler. Ça va? Ça va. Excellent. I'm going to bring you the latest from Italy, which is being savaged by Moscow because of its sanctions. But at the same time, it's ready to open up its economy finally post-pandemic. I'm also going to bring you, of course, the latest from the Vatican and the Pope's peace efforts, especially with Moscow's Orthodox Patriarch. And Tyler, can we just have a little chat at some point? A small one. About Zelensky's comms team? Absolutely. We'll be doing much of that on today's program. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will be here. We'll also be heading to the Netherlands to check in with one of our favorite booksellers, Athenames, René van der Kamp, a little bit later. What's really striking at the moment is that people want to read so much about what's going on, I mean, in Ukraine war and everything. So, yeah, people really try to understand what's happening, and that's what you see in sales. We'll have much more across the next 56 minutes or so. It's the 20th of March, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from an absolutely dazzlingly sunny Zurich this morning. It's spring is very much uh, in the air. I'm happy to say, as we said at the outset, Juliet Lindley is here. Uh, also, Marcus Schugel from St. Gallen University. Good morning, Marcus. Very nice to see you. It's been a while. So you've sort of made your way from St. Gallen. I know you spend a lot of your time in Zurich, but yeah, you're here too. this morning. Very good to see you. Thank you. All well yeah. in the world of education? Well, um, all moved, all shaked by what's happening in Europe. Um, all students are awake discussing um, a lot of initiatives, a lot, lot of stuff going on. Uh, yeah, uh, university life is active right now. Well, as we said a little bit earlier as well, we'll be talking about uh, the world of marketing and communications, certainly as it uh, applies to uh, the current conflict uh, in the Ukraine. I'm also very happy to say that our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is with us this morning. Um, he is in London. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler, from, yes, a very sunny London. Andrew, you're sounding, um, the pitch is much higher uh, than it was on, on, on Friday morning. Maybe we should start by sort of, you know, uh, the, the morning after the night before, after the, the morning that was. Uh, uh, well, oh dear. So um, <laughs> I've, I've read your column as well, and I think there's a bit of a discrepancy in that. Okay, Andrew, I, I, maybe I you think need think to we, set it up. You need to set up, actually, so if people didn't read your column yesterday... <laughs> What you want? Okay, I was on very Saturday, modest. So on, on, on Thursday, and, and on, obviously what on, I was setting on, up today as well. Okay, because <laughs> we're, we're going to have one of those fact checks in a moment. Because uh, on on Thursday we had a very very nice party for staff and a few old friends at the Chilton Street Firehouse, which is always a blast to go to. And we took over the courtyard and all of the bar, and I started on the champagne. I very quickly moved to Negroni, and I think I thought there was a challenge to drink one for every single year we'd been in business. So things went downhill rather quickly. And then you very kindly invited a few of us to grab some food with you in the restaurant. Now, here's the discrepancy, because you said you would, you, we abandoned you at that point and you, you suddenly realised that we had left you, because I don't think that's what happened. I think me and Sophie were like left trying to squeeze into a pub with a bouncer who wouldn't let us in. <laughs> <laughs> and then, anyway, back to Midori House, where you somehow encouraged, uh, I, I'd already gone by then, but you encouraged our staff to, to set up a kind of a, a spontaneous nightclub. I hear tables were moved, a dance floor created. Suddenly people were doing cartwheels, they were being swung around the room by their heels. It was a party. 
It's true. And but this is the strange thing, Andrew, that our, our colleagues were able to make all of this happen in ten minutes, which suggests when we're very sensibly in bed in London or other parts of the world, maybe they are running a disco part time as well that we don't know. But but the neighbor the neighbors might tell us. Emma, our former our main course our our our, our producer newsreader today might have a view um, on that as well, because if they were running disco, we probably would have been shut down a while ago. Um, well, you see, I live not very far from you, Tyler, so I'd be absolutely delighted if you set up shop in there, but I couldn't possibly say that anything untoward ever happens at Midori House, I know. I know that you were a very welcome addition to the neighbourhood when you arrived, and since then there have been a couple of bumps in the road, but nothing that you haven't smoothed over with, with, with a couple of smiles and thank yous, handshakes, coffees and the odd glass of wine. So you've been very, very diplomatic and a very warm edition. <laughs> and you're much more interesting than, than most of the other people who live around here. So it's, we're, we're glad you're Tyler, here. I will re- interesting is a Tyler, very will... powered, powerful word. <laughs> Tyler, I'll reveal that one colleague did actually go back to the, the office and was so exhausted already, fell asleep in the office, was woken up, got their train home finally, and woke up in Bromley, which is, is, is not exactly where he was destined for, and then had to take a taxi back at two o'clock in the morning back to London. <laughs> so but the good news was they were back all at their desk by 10 o'clock. They, they, they were actually, they were at their desk at, at nine o'clock with very, very slim, uh, small, little sl- tiny eyes because they could barely, barely stay awake. Uh, Andrew, do you want to maybe start off, uh, aside from sort of reviewing the week uh, or that evening that was, uh, what's been, uh, what's uh, catching your eyes this morning as you uh, scan the front pages? Well, you know, the quagmire that obviously is what's happening in Ukraine is reflected on the front pages. You know, there's there, there's there's very little to report that's you know, dramatically new. The, the, the terrible news coming out from um, Mariupol, uh, but it, it feels a little bit we're, we're caught in a bit of a, a trap of a, a news cycle. The journalists don't know which way things are going. But I think that when you step back from it, I think what you do notice is that people are saying, look, for all of these amazing videos that the Ukrainians putting up of showing them taking out tanks and, and military vehicles and, and their successful drone attacks, you have to look at the map and actually, bit by bit, the Russians are, are still making advances. Not, not the pace they wanted, not in a way that may be able to be you know, held on to for weeks and weeks and weeks, but they are making progress and we, and we shouldn't kid ourselves that the Ukrainians are going to stop it any day soon. And that's why I think we've seen Zelensky in the last 24 hours saying Look, it, we really need to move on with these peace talks and, and find some solution. Um, Andrew, just before we went on air, we were uh, talking with, with both Marcus and, and Juliet. And Juliet, I want to bring you in here because you wanted to focus on just the, the marketing machine, which has become Zelensky, the administration, the Ukraine um, as well. What's what's your starting point? I mean, aside from, of course, the very, his, the very obvious presence, of course, how he's gone on this, you know, almost daily video roadshow, uh, talking to, to cabinets and parliaments and heads of state around the world in a very, very public manner. Well, yeah, you know, the entire country seems to have fallen behind what appears to be an unwritten comms plan that's just been spontaneous and authentic and so effective. Now, they're driven by a common cause and all seem to be singing from the same song sheet. And it feels like there's some big comms director behind it. I don't know much about this, but perhaps not. And it's a small group of communications specialists that are consulting Zelensky really well, possibly, probably former TV scriptwriters from his his 
former career and, and maybe even his wife, Olena Zelenska. She's a 44-year-old comedy writer. She's already got more than two and a half million followers on Instagram. And they're just using honest comms techniques that always work. And of course, given the circumstances, that's not hard. But um, he's, he's a great communicator, as we know, and he obviously speaks well to camera. And we've seen him doing a lot of sort of selfie videos and everything. And um, just as we have Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on the comms side saying he's really appreciating Fox News, its coverage of the um, of the, the of, well, we'll call it the invasion and saying that it, Fox is the only media outlet that seems to have an alternative viewpoint. And Fox anchor Tucker Carlson is a bit of a star in Russia now, I'm mm. guessing. But I'm looking at Marcus here. Let's let's I want to bring you in, Marcus. Yeah, maybe just before and then, I think you just mentioned it. Very important. Uh, Mr. Zelensky has a media background, so any kind of consultant that is consulting him, he's he's preaching a little bit to the prior, I think. Um, he by himself is, from my point of view, very well communicating. He has got a lot of people, I think, that are helping him to do this just by the workload. But the idea of taking over the social media landscape as a battleground that's what he found and that's what he got he's into at every echo chamber the topic is in he's everywhere bringing across his his points and we've got a close connection in that guy to vitali klitschko to his brother who is um, the mayor of ukraine um, vladimir klitschko and um, those two guys independently using the same courts the same arguments and getting down to an i think Maybe they really struck on their understanding and their identity. I'm not quite sure, but I think this whole game is right now really something where perception is stronger than reality. I think, Andrew, you put that very well. We see a lot of stuff going on in the media, and we feel so much with the Ukraines in a positive way. When you look at the reality, I mean, Russia hasn't even started to pull armies away from other borders where they're standing and all that stuff. We don't know what might be coming if they're not coming down to a conclusion within the next days. Andrew, I just want to bring you in. Do you think that we have a situation here where on one side, we've, we've heard, of course, a lot of, about a lot of uh, advisors on the, the defense side of things. Do you think there are a number of advisors you know, sitting in London right now, big comms firms also engaged in this? Without a doubt, and certainly in the U.S., and you, you saw Biden, you know, he's been mocked a little bit for it, but he was, you know, he, he called in people on TikTok, he addressed people on TikTok saying, look, you have an ability here to kind of change the narrative. If you look what's happening on social media, how it's been picked up by a young generation who see this as, as kind of their, the war that they need to get involved with, that they see it as a, as a very simple right and wrong being played out here. I think there's, within, but then you go to tech companies where they're offering hacking uh, uh, solutions, where you see what Elon Musk is doing to help digitally. So I think if you went to you know, California, there are a lot of people advising uh, and sending information about what they need to do. If you look at the way how skillful they are releasing these, this drone footage and how it gets airtime on every single news site, again, how, how clever they are. I think some people are a little bit uncomfortable with, with some of the things the Ukrainians are doing. This parading of captured Russian troops on TV, often 16-year-old, 18-year-old, whatever they are, young, they're young men, they're, they're boys in, in many senses. They're paraded on TV, they're made to say that they, that they didn't want to be in this war, probably true, but it means that they have no exit from this when they, where they go home, they can't go back to Russia, they'll be court-martialed, their families would be in trouble. So I think that some people are getting a little 
little bit uncomfortable at some of the things the Ukrainians are doing, but there's no doubt that they are definitely, definitely winning the war of information. Juliet, when, when you look at this, and obviously CNN is is, is on, on the big screen. Andrew, Juliet has one of the biggest uh, screens in any living room anywhere in, in Switzerland. <laughs> they fully embrace the notion of near field projection. Um, it does so, disappear when you want it to. I know. Anyway, and you're you're also going to be to be moving soon. So hopefully there's a big a big expanse of white wall or, or room for a big screen to come down. But Juliet, when you're watching, uh, and, and you brought up obviously the uh, just that that notion of of Fox uh, mentioning Tucker Carlson, uh, and Andrew sort of touched on a little bit as well that there is this there's a sort of a, a bit of a troublesome situation right now for the news gathering organizations that you know cnn some days they've got 10 people up on screen they've got correspondence everywhere it seems there's been a small demobilization um it's it's a bit of a long road as well to deploy people for this period as well and also keep up the momentum as well I've seen a few uh, less faces, if you want. They were all based in Lviv, weren't they? Because it was so far from the offences. And now that Lviv has also come under aggression, I, I'm seeing a, a, a rather rapid, perhaps, depletion. Uh, I mean, rightly so. I mean, how many... But in uh, fairness, they do have people in Kiev and they, they do have people yes, elsewhere no, no, in the country. Absolutely. But, but yes, the, the big deployment, in, big in deployment was in, yeah. in the west of the country. But, uh, Andrew, on that as well, do you think this also causes a problem for, you know, at a time when newsrooms are, are well, seemingly always challenged when it comes to budgets as well? Um, a lot of people must be getting to the end of, of Q1 thinking, OK, you know, how do we have to reforecast this year? Yeah, and I also think, Tyler, you know, that we've got so used to being in this world of, you know, wars fought through TV and through social media that we expect wars to last quite a nice short time, you know, a span that fits in with the media cycle. So people were gearing up for a, a war initially that they thought would take a couple of weeks for the Russians to be able to get the Zelensky government to step down and be able to put in a puppet regime. And when they realised that didn't happen, then they had to change the way they operate again. But you look at, you know, and you'll know this better than me, Tyler, you look at the, the media machines that were put in place to cover something like the civil war in Lebanon. It wasn't about covering something for two, four, six, eight weeks. It was about covering a situation for years. And there you began to find correspondents who owned that war. If you look at the, you know, the Vietnam War, it just took years to unfold all the events, to come to some kind of deal, to get some capitulation where you could have peace again. And I think here what we're looking at is a situation which we don't know where, which way it will go. Is this a, going to be a Vietnam situation within the heart of Europe that will go on for years and years and years? And therefore, the media companies need to be thinking about long term, what will be our coverage if we are there for a year or two years? Because, yes, Russia is making advances, but you do think that this is not going to play out quickly. No, and and as you said as well, you think back to the to the Vietnam conflict when you you, do, you couldn't have satellite dishes everywhere, etc. That there was also you know one or two correspondents only emerged in that period. That's where you had the rise of a very specific um, stars. Um, just uh, Marcus, just uh, maybe before we um, move on topic wise, just going back to this PR story that we're talking about, you know, around Zelensky. Do you see that this is probably going to become? a course uh, that we're probably going to see case studies about this, that this is going to be, and, and whether we're three, you know, three years out from here uh, or, or even uh, in, more in the near term as well, that this really becomes probably something which is going to be part of the curriculum, at least, at least in some institutions. Um, I'm picking it up in my lecture next week. 
So just for the reason of understanding how corporations are dealing with that and how they, when they have a purposeful brand, how they should deal with it and how they deal with the, with the war and how they can relate to that. From my point of view, this is really, this is, that's, that's a change in how you need to understand when you're as a brand communicating. We had here in Switzerland a big discussion if brands should be politically or not. I mean, what's the discussion? What's the point? If you're a corporate citizen, you need to act and then it reflects the brand and then you need to do something that you're convinced about. But the whole idea of, of having this, 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 this man and the politics behind it, at least at corporate communications, it's something that you need to think about and understand on, 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 on how, how you build the story and how you get the whole stuff done. How do you do it professionally in a way that it's not seen professionally and all that stuff? I think there would be a lot of angles to that from any any kind of point when mm. you look at marketing communication. Juliet and Andrew, I want to come to you on this. Juliet, does a brand always have to respond? Right now, there's this expectation that a brand has to respond within sort of the hour. Um, is is there a window that's acceptable now? Um, and, and is it acceptable just to also to, to stay stay out of it? Marcus, I'll come back to you in a moment. I'm going to go to London, Andrew, in a moment. But Juliet, but, uh, you, you first. No, in the 24-hour news cycle, you don't have very long. And speaking of which, we were just looking at Nestle's response to Zelensky yesterday. There was a, for our listeners, there was a Swiss demonstration, an anti-war demonstration in Bern yesterday afternoon. Zelensky called out Nestle saying, um, you know, its business uh, is continuing while in Mariupol people have nothing to eat. Nestle's slogan is good food, good life. How can that possibly be? Nestle's answer was, we've stopped all imports and exports from and to Russia except essential products such as baby food. And then that, of course, rings alarm bells to all of us who remember the whole baby formula scandal, scandal and, yes. and everything. So Nestle is being called on to, to, um, to walk the walk and talk the talk. And now we're wondering whether there might be a consumer boycott. But yeah, nowadays, your brand has to sort of fall in line with, with um, what is seen to be right. And that's also... You can question what is seen to be right or mm. not, but in this case, it's quite easy. But Andrew, yeah, I, I, I don't think that brands have much room to manoeuvre at the moment because it is still seen as such a, a simple battle, as I said, between you know right and wrong. Although I think that we have to be wary because you know I don't know that there is a, a bit of a witch huntery around some of it. So I, I think we have to be cautious that yeah, there are people who are Russian who have been living outside of the country for many many years who are running legitimate businesses, and I think many of those people are beginning to feel kind of like targeted in some way. We had a very strange situation with uh, Monocle actually, somebody who has a, a Russian name who wrote a, a story for Monocle, and two people have now written to me to ask who she is. Now I, I find that strange, and they, they don't even live in Russia. Now, there is a, a queasiness about seeing anything Russian that is going to continue to kind of pull down companies. So I think everyone's going to look at their supply chains, and that's all legitimate. But at the same time, Tyler, you know, we, we have to think, you know, it's not that unfeasible that, you know, the, that China will do the same in Taiwan. And you look at the exposure to brands, to manufacturing, to distribution, to everything in China, could they really unravel in, in, in such haste and speed from a market like that? Then, then you think that then it's tricky because actually what often is happening in Russia is, is companies with actually very little exposure are making a big hullabaloo about kind of like coming out of Russia. And actually, they're not doing that big a thing. So I think there's going to be a general looking at supply chains for all of these companies over the next couple of years. Well, and as, as you said as well, also, it's one thing to say that you're shutter, shutting your retail, um, but also supply chain as well. I mean, if you look at IKEA in Russia, there's a lot of production there um, at the same time. So are you going to be shuttering? Are you going to be cutting those things off immediately? But Marcus is dying to jump in on this one. Um, Mark, go no, ahead. And basically, what I think is 
And this 24-hour news cycle pushes companies to, sometimes. They got on the wrong foot. German supermarket chain said, freedom is food. And they got blamed for that, to being so quick and not reacting properly. And I think companies need to rethink what a proper reaction is. And I think what Nestle did was the discourse that we need to have how we react to this in the long term because as we said it's not going to be over within the next two to three days if not they really come down to peace talks you need to ask yourself how do you really engage in the long term what do you do with ukraine's that get a free zim card and stay for three years do they stay free with the zim card or when do you they will come up with the topic so from a corporate marketing point of view and branding point of view it's more important that you ask yourself, what is really my position than just running with the lemmings? Okay, if there come sanctions, you will be pushed out of a certain country and out of Russia. But beyond that, you need to ask yourself, what can you actively do that fits to the idea mm. that you're standing for? And I think in the next years, we're going to see a lot of those topics coming up. And especially, as you just mentioned, <clears throat> when those conflicts get into Asia and get into other fields of the world. And I'm not quite sure um, if this discussion then stays so positive as it is right now from the corporate point of view and so easy to answer. Mm. Andrew, let's swing the lens back to London for a moment. Uh, of course, you've been our um, PM uh, Boris watcher for a long time. Uh, <laughs> Little question for a Sunday morning. Um, has this conflict allowed him to to dodge things? But, you know, it seems that we had a bit of, um, yeah, I guess a bit of a, a kind of an inappropriate comparison in a, in a discussion or a speech that he made yesterday. Yes, he, you know, he compared it to the, the, the battle for Brexit. And, you know, obviously that's a, a battle in the end that, you know, he personally won. I don't think it's gone down with, with commentators either on right or left as a, a very sensible kind of comparison. But he is doing... I think if we look at every, all of these European leaders, they can't help but get tempted to play along with it a little bit to get, get some votes. If you look at Macron and his cosplay of dressing up like Zelensky this week, you know that there's no doubt that you know he sees an opportunity that in being associated with with the cause. Boris, you know, sees it as a, a personal mission apparently to stand up against Russia. He's, 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 he's having, as you might say, a good war. And the debates around Partygate seem to have been gone right into the background. Of course, we haven't had the official report. He may get his, his, his knuckles wrapped, but I don't think anybody now actually seriously believes he'll be forced to step down over something as, as silly as, as what seems now so silly as, as, as breaking COVID rules. Andrew, do you want to hear about Berlusconi's wedding? I'd love to hear about Berlusconi's <laughs> wedding, please. <laughs> Juliet, over to you. Andrew, the bride is 53 years younger than the groom. Is that a good start, Andrew? It's irrelevant, I don't know, these days, right? I, I, think, I think it's good, it's good, it's good. Let's, let's, let's go along with this. Let's move along. It's not even a proper wedding, it's just symbolic, because as you might guess, Berlusconi's five children perhaps were opposed to it for obvious inheritance reasons. So um, he's married Marta Fascina. 32 years old. She's an MP for uh, for his party, Forza Italia, and he's been she's been an MP for three years. And she's the one who really wanted this party, Tyler, uh, funnily enough. And uh, yeah, took place in the north of Italy. He wore a blue Armani suit. She wore a gorgeous puffy white lace dress by Antonio Riva. And we'll leave it at that. Okay. And but how is this how is this playing in the Italian papers as well? So if we would look at not that well, let's say the the red the version of the the red top press, which is not so much of, of in Italy, but of course you've got all of the weeklies, etc. They have all been 
in attendance? Are we going to see sort of massive reportage around this uh, when they hit the news? Sure, we will, especially because he owns some of those. He owns Key, for instance, the glossy magazine. But there is a lot of cynicism. Come on, it's his it's his it's not even a wedding, but it's his third marriage. If you want, he's got five children from two wives, a long line of um, showgirls in his past. But at least she's a parliamentarian. Hi. Hey, um, and maybe just very quickly, Andrew also wants the news from the Vatican. And if you can do it in less than 90 seconds. Good we... heavens. Well, the Pope is pressing for peace, as we know, and he's referring in all of his um, addresses to whether he's at private events, whether he's talking in public at his... Um, uh, Does the his Pope go to a lot of private events? He, well, you know, like maybe conferences or okay. private as in, you mean dinner parties. He does go to... He does go to a lot of dinner parties. He to mind lately, No, okay. Maybe, yeah. Maybe to your housewarming. Uh, maybe to the famous housewarming. No. And Radio Vatican is going to be increasing its shortwave broadcast to Russia and Ukraine Thanks. this week. They actually don't just do religious news. They do have proper news bulletins, which is perhaps interesting for you. You might be wanting to tune in next time you're in Moscow. But yeah, then he's also been, again, we brought this up last week, Tyler. He's again he, um, talking with Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill. And he's really trying to get Kirill to call out Vladimir Putin. But it's just not happening. The Russian Orthodox leader is echoing the Kremlin's special military operation line. Very good. Andrew Tuck, um, we're going to leave you to get on with your uh, Sunday. Have a very, uh, very lovely one. And uh, we will see Andrew. Andrew's going to be up in St. Moritz uh, with me on... Uh, Andrew, we're up there the first, second, third, I believe, uh, for an end-of-season moment, uh, also a special edition of Meet the Writers and this very program coming live. Are you excited about that, Andrew? I'm very excited about that. And I've, I've made a good promise I don't have to go down any toboggan runs. No toboggan runs. Hopefully the, the, a lot of the snow will be, will be gone by then. Uh, hopefully Emma Nelson is not gone. She should be at the desk with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The mayor of the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol says thousands of citizens have been forcibly removed from bunkers and deported to Russia. There are concerns they'll be used as propaganda. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, will speak to Israel's parliament later today. It's understood he'll invoke his Jewishness and commit compare events with the Second World War. There are reports that at least four people have been killed after a car driving into a crowd prepared for a carnival in Belgium. Local media say the car drove into the people as they prepared for a procession in Strepi Brakigny in the southwest of the country. South Korea's president-elect is to move the presidential office from the Blue House to the Defence Ministry compound. The Blue House in Seoul will be opened to the public. And police in Alabama were called last week to reports of a break-in at a local church. They found the glass front door had been head-butted into pieces and the kitchen raided. Pictures from the scene show one of the culprits was standing in a cardboard box on top of a fridge. Officers were quoted as saying that the offenders, two goats, were a pair of real animals. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Switzerland. I, I got so distracted. Where, where, where did this happen? <laughs> I, was, I was looking at the monitors in the studio. Wait, wait, wait. Go, rewind. OK. Uh, Alabama, local church. They turn right. up, call, call reports of a burglary. The alarm's gone off. They mm-hmm. get there. The front door has been head-butted in. Yeah. OK. I, just, I, just, I got that. that that's, that's what caught my attention. OK. Okay. There's sh- bit shards of shattered glass everywhere, and, and when they when they reach the two culprits, they're, they're sta- the pictures are marvelous because the look of defiance on the goat's face is, is quite astonishing. It's, why why is there anything wrong with this? And there is one standing in a large cardboard. I think it's a television box uh, on top of a fridge, just wondering why on earth anybody's 
bothered. But they were arrested. Well, they weren't arrested, obviously. You can't. I don't know. Do Can they you arrest a de- goat? I, don't know. I was going to do they have the death penalty in Alabama. That's my question. Well, let's ask Juliet whether she wants to cook two goats and do the goat. <laughs> But I'm wondering, Emma, what yes. kind of alerts do you have that mm. you always get all this goat news in your inbox? Oh, it's, 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 it's she hours, has an alert, right? hours of work, Juliet. <laughs> Heavy not... lifting doesn't even begin to describe it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm across the goat. I'm across the goat. I'm across the goat. Goat news. I'm across just, the just while, Emma, while we it's have tiny. you here, and just uh, because obviously you used to cover the ba- the Vatican beat. How many? How many goats are at the Vatican? Not how many goats. <laughs> how many languages Vatican does, does Vatican Radio uh, broadcast in? Uh, well, well, just like a roughly lot, a lot. lot. What does oh. the broadcast? What does the broadcast setup look like? Is it quite? Is it quite? Is it quite impressive? It is quite impressive, yeah. and it is quite extensive, and and certainly. Is it in? Is it in, within the the Holy See? Is it? Yes. It is. It is, and it is in. I would say maybe, at least ten languages, and that that might sound. I might be completely off. Emma, are you googling it? But okay, no, and and yeah. they do regular news bulletins, and we used to listen to oh, Vatican Radio in Rome back in the day on shortwave. My mum had this little crackly uh, radio. So it isn't just Hail Marys that you're hearing. No, no, I'm, I'm sure not. They've got correspondence around the world, and yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah, so you will tune in. How Emma, they, maybe go ahead. Sorry, Emma, how go do ahead. they how do they balance the tone then? Because obviously they've got they must have a fair few Hail Marys just to pad out the schedule. Of course, of course. And then can you just jump into breaking news or how do they how do they skew this? Because obviously it's a really delicate balance you have to spread. Gosh, the last time I listened to Vatican news was quite a while ago. But you will of course have skewed news. You're not going to have any pro-abortion news. <laughs> No, clearly, <laughs> clearly, clearly or, or, or not. Pro divorce, or you know. Like, I know it's probably because they play to their geographies as well. Of course, uh, that there's they, they probably have very large transmitters in, in the Philippines, etc. As well. Well, they've yeah. got they've all got all those wonderful t- churches, which act as fabulous transmitters. If you just pop a <laughs> transmitter on the top of a spy, you can it's reach true. the entire. Globe. Just don't put goats in them. It's true. No, Emma, we'll uh, maybe catch up with you at the end of the program. If we don't, um, have a very lovely Sunday. Uh, we're heading to uh, Amsterdam uh, right now. Very happy to say that we're talking to. Renny Vanderkamp in a moment. Of course, she's in charge of Athenaeum Books, uh, one of our favorite booksellers. We keep on promising that we're going to do a book signing there. It hasn't quite happened yet. But Renny, let's let's just, by the time we get to this, the end of this interview, um, let's try to find a date. Good morning, by the way. Hello, good morning, Tyler. Lovely to hear you again. Uh, very good to, to hear from you. I uh, Well, let's, let's start with your breaking news that you've yeah. opened a new outlet. Uh, so there is another branch of Athenaeum somewhere uh, in and around Amsterdam. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah, we recently opened, I like, we had like three days. We opened on Thursday a new bookstore in a, in a suburb on the southwest, southeast sorry, of Amsterdam, the Belmer. It's quite famous uh, in history. Um, yeah, it's a really growing neighborhood. It's a really growing part of our city. Uh, lots of young people, very international. And there's no bookstore. So we thought it was about time to, to, to start a proper bookstore. So, yeah, here we are. And we're very happy to be there. And uh, tell us about the, the reception and, and why that neighborhood in, in particular, just because there was a bookstore, it, it went away, you spotted the opportunity, was the, hopefully it, the rent was right in these times uh, as well. But what was the motivating factor or factors? Well, the motivating factor is also that we thought it was time to sort of spread our wings. And uh, because Amsterdam is growing and also the other neighborhoods are growing. And um, yeah, we are ma- all our stores are mainly in the city center. So we thought... It's good to, to sort of spread our wings and, and meet new people, meet new clients, and also work together with other cultural institutions in other neighborhoods rather than a sort of posh city center. 
Now, and to tell us, for those uh, of our listeners who are familiar with your bookstore, they'll know that you've got you know, all of the major international titles out front. You can come and get, of course, you know, various international weekend editions, of course, all of the Dutch newspapers as well, and of course, an amazing array of books. Is it the same offer if we go to your new outlet? Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a smaller store. Um, but yeah, we will have the sort of, yeah, the, the sort of similar um, sections. But we also focus on, on our new clientele and we, and we need to get to know them. Um, it's a very diverse neighborhood. So, and for instance, we've had these the last couple of days, a lot of young people coming in and immediately going to the shelves with the young adults novels. So the TikTok generation, which is very nice, young families, we have children's books. Um, <clears throat> to be honest, uh, usually at SPAU, we sell a lot of international newspapers every weekend. And yesterday in a new store, it was a bit quiet. And that made me having time to read the marvelous piece by Maria Stepanova about the Ukrainian war in the financial times. It was a br- it's a brilliant piece, very recommendable. So, yeah, we, we need to learn what our new clientele wants. But we have a great selection of English novels, magazines, fiction, nonfiction, Brit- uh, you know, English, Dutch. Um, yeah, so we, 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 we are very international as well as our store on Spau. Yeah. Tell me, I was um, I was in London this week. I was in Daunt Bookshops, of course, another another favorite outlet of ours, and and they'd very much sort of merchandised uh, their point of sale around books around, of course, Ukraine, uh, and and certainly uh, the, the Near East here um, on this side of of the world. Uh, similar situation there, and have you seen an uptick in books, you know, by Ukraine authors, or certainly covering, uh, yeah, the historical context of the region in general? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you see that reflected in book sales. People want to understand what's happening or want to get to know more. So there's a there's a Dutch novelist, Lisa Veda. Uh, she's from half Ukrainian background and she wrote a novel, Alexandra, about her grandmother that sells really well. But also um, there's, you know, talk shows with people recommending books on the on the topic. And then Sinky Boys by Svetlana Alekseevich is, uh, is, is highly asked for. And there's a Dutch historian who wrote a book about Ukraine. So, yeah, you really see that reflected. Like, you know, Economist, all those magazines, they do as well. So it's absolutely reflected as well, yeah. But happily, there's also other stuff. Like, there's a really nice book about cities. It's called Future Cities. And it's actually a sort of visual story about the fastest growing cities in the world, like Lima and Nairobi. And it's an amazing photography and, and interviews with people and, and, and actually what's what's making, what's the positive side of these fast-growing cities. And it's an absolutely thrilling book. Very, very, very good. Really, tell us, so you've got uh, also National Book Week uh, yeah, is yeah. coming up um, in, in the Netherlands uh, or it's it's in play uh, already. What is, what is the, I, I mean, aside from maybe the thematic um, around this, is this... You know, both an educational exercise uh, as much as a cultural exercise. Is it driven also by just stimulating the industry or is it about stimulating the, the end consumer? It's actually, I think it's both because it's, it's, it's been every year and it is, it is postponed because of COVID. And now it's in, usually it's in March and now it's, it's, it's in April. It's every year and it's actually for bookstores and for, uh, for publishing houses, it's the main Except, you know, next to like Christmas sales, it's it's the main week of, of, of book sales. So there's also there's with every purchase, there's a book, a gift. Um, and that's written by uh, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, who is a very famous author here. And there's an essay every year. And the essay this year is written by Marike Lukas Reinefeld, whose work is also translated into into English. 
Um, so and 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 there's a theme every year. This year it's it's new love. So many publishing houses they they launch their books within the theme or around the theme or something. Uh, there's a lot of public public publicity and all that. So yeah, it's a, it's a very important week to come. You actually gave us a great segue because uh, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, um, of course, the author of Grand Hotel Europa, which is just going into English. Oh, um, he's doing his first English language appearance and reading with us in St. Moritz uh, on the 2nd of April. So we're going to, uh, so if anyone's listening and Ren, if you want to come down to, to Switzerland to to hear him uh, speak and read uh, in one of Europe's grand hotels, uh, we're going to be hosting that on April 2nd. For listeners, if you want to come along, then uh, do uh, just visit our website, monocle.com and look, have a look under events. So very excited that book is coming. If you, I'm, of course, you've read the book, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Yeah, and your yeah. Th- thoughts and views on it? How will it do in English? Because it was amazing sort of seeing how well it's done in German. you top of the yeah. of Der Spiegel's bestseller list. Uh, that's how it sort of jumped to my attention. Uh, obviously, knowing, that, of course, that it had, had already done very well in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a very, very famous novel. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible book. And, and I think something obviously of, of, of our time. And I think this is what the, the conversation that we want to open up about the notion uh, of, of Europe in these times uh, and uh, our Georgina Godwin already did an interview with him. Um, and it was it was just sort of quite quite a riveting listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very, very nice to, to, to talk to him and to hear him read and, and speak. It must be must be amazing. I can't be there on the second because on the second of April, we have a sort of a celebratory uh, opening of our new store. So we will have uh, another poet speaking and uh, like a Suriname uh, music band so yeah we're gonna have a nice party in a, in a new store so i can't be around but okay all right anyway listen they'll, 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 there will be other opportunities now yeah. just before we go and we still have to get to that to that date for our uh, event um but one of the th- reasons why of course we love athenaeum is because it's not just about a commitment to books but it's a commitment to paper and it's a commitment to magazines and as you said earlier newspapers uh, as well we've been talking over the past two years uh, during the pandemic how well magazines were doing or have been doing um any any dip or or are you still seeing robust sales, or certainly sales sales that are that are stabilized uh, in in the world of periodicals? Yeah, well, of course, there's there has been a dip during COVID. Yes, of course, because many of the magazines is is what you buy when you leave through it and when you see it and feel it. Um, but yeah, it's picking up again. And and as I yeah always say, like print isn't dead. There's so many new titles coming up. Like uh, for instance, Deem is a new magazine about design, the social impact of design which is an amazing uh, publication. Selvedge, which is a, a very stable title on, on textile culture. They now made a tribute to Virgil Abloh, who recently passed away. And But, you must know, But magazine, and they did a relaunch recently. So uh, there's, a, there's a new edition of the But magazine, which is interesting because also the, the back issues, people are asking for the back issues as well. So, of course, we know the guys really well. So we have all the back issues now as well. So it's a, it's a nice... It's a nice opportunity to uh, to get acquainted with a fantastic title, which is a very stable title as well. Are you surprised, Ranger, that, that at, at a time where everything seems so chaste and you know having a title like "But," uh, you know, and this, of course, for our listeners, uh, is, is from you know the, the same founding team uh, behind "Fantastic Man," the Gentlewoman, uh, and you know this is it's very you know it's fun, it's raunchy, it's body, it's all of these things. At a time when a lot of people go, oh, you know, you can't say things like that. You can't show imagery like that. Maybe the Netherlands is is different. And it, I mean, I was very happy to see as well that one of our neighbors um, in London on Children's Street were also celebra- celebrating its its launch. Uh, of course, we, you know, you and I know this is important. But are you surprised that there's the courage to still push forward and do a title like this? 
Yeah, I think there's that, there's room for that. You know, it's. I mean, yeah, it, it, some things are are getting a bit more sort of um, strict, maybe. But on the other hand, people want to express themselves and um, are happy to be who they are, and there's room for that. Um, so I think that that's also reflected in maybe even more in magazine uh, publications than in books. I think because mm-hmm. magazines give a, give a better opportunity to sort of do something small and and make it big or do something that you want if it's if it's well made and if it's it's well designed and and, and well edited then there's room for that there's there's, an, there's enough the crowd to buy it is large enough i think yeah indeed yeah. just before we go what what's going to be the what's an ideal date for us when when's the weather going to be good enough that we can spill out onto the street and in front of your main store uh, when when should we uh Get in, well, we can get in touch tomorrow morning um, and, and work on diaries. But what would be an ideal date for us it's to come coming. and do Yeah, a series of events maybe right. around different things that we've got coming out, Renee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's speak. Let's let's make a because I, I actually I forgot to, to congratulate you with the anniversary issue of Monaco magazine. Thank you. Thank Look, you very much. You know, we're very happy to you have sold all the issues. So that's very nice. Um, yeah. So, so let's keep uh, let's keep in touch about uh, the publications and, and options. Um, to, to to do something either on Spau or maybe in our new store. Why not? Or, 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 or even both. We can uh, have a bit both? of a traveling roadshow. Uh, Renee van der Kemp uh, from Athenaeum Books uh, in Amsterdam. Very good uh, to talk to you. Just before we, we go, Marcus, I just want to bring you in. We're going to go to a short commercial break. We're going to be heading to Bangkok um, in a moment. Are you spending much time, uh, you know, certainly with your students talking about this this kind of funny moment that we're in that, of course, on one side, you can consume all manners of things on your screen uh, for all varieties and, and tastes. Uh, yet we also feel that we're in a very sort of chaste period right now. Can't say this, can't say that. Everybody's u- universally offended, it seems, at all times. Uh, and and, and we were, this picks up on the theme as well, that people are so fast also on the trigger as well when it comes to corporates as much as individuals. Do you think this represents a, a, a unique period? And I guess the other thing, which we talk about a lot, is it more of a English language phenomenon it, because we feel that a lot of the tools that allow us to behave like this or for others to behave like that come from the West Coast, <laughs> They're, they, they've largely come from the US. And, and of course, the whole debate, um, I would say, around identity culture very much feels something that has come from uh, you know, certain colleges in, in the US. I was. I know it's a, this is. I mean, we could spend hours and we could make a, a ten-part series on this. <clears throat> yeah, but maybe brief. Um, I was for the last three to four years. I was really happy that we had a little different take here in, in Europe on this one, um, a little bit more reflective and a little bit less, so, so to say, normative, and discussing more what is behind it. Uh, but you see the first signs coming up. There was a first case. Uh, of some cancelling culture to some professors at the ETH in the last month, in the last weeks. Um, it's getting closer. Mm. And, um, we feel ourselves a little bit in between of how to react to this. Mm. And I can, and it, it's, it's for me, it's, uh, and by when you talk about marketing, you need to be at the, at, at what is the sense of the, of the society and all that stuff. It's a tricky path right now, I think. Mm. but I think it's it, it's worthwhile taking the discussion if you do a discussion. If you take it differently, then I would say we're getting into trouble. But no. it's a discussion that we. Need to and I was talking to some, someone very senior at your university, and and yeah. they, and they and he, and he was saying to me, it's it's you know it's an export from the U.S. They're just yeah. not interested in. He yeah. said people come to our university 
you're focused on business, business is about risk, and you have to have some risky discussions. And he said, if we come to a point at a university like yours, which is globally respected, it's problematic. You know, and this idea of creating a university as a safe space, it's like, he said, universities aren't safe. No. Marcus, no, what you, were the issues, sorry, yeah. that, that caused that at the Etihad that you're referring to? So there was a professor of um, information science who was bringing up an example on how algorithms are judging upon certain parts of society. And there was, a, there was a national group which was related to Chinese people and saying you could relate this judgment of the algorithm and say, and make a prejudice about Chinese. So there were heavy comments on him on that um, on that um, on that slide. It got ballistic, social, heavily, and without context as well. Yeah, Again, this no was, it was the one slide yeah, out of many slides, so yeah. you didn't see the lead up going into yeah. it. But it, it it ended up exactly as it ends up in the in the in, 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 uh, in the chair from Netflix, you know, yeah. where, where this reaction is shown, and it was so close to that to that comedy and to that satire on it. Mm -hmm. I said to myself, goodness, and exactly the guy you're talking about, I think you talk about Thomas Bichon, our, our ethic professor, he takes a huge, he takes a huge punch on that. And I think what's really, it's not only about taking risks, it's about dialogue, it's about discourse, it's about finding out how we want to change that stuff. And that's home at our university as we are more inter, inter functional, cross-cultural, oriented and more systemic systemic thinking than others maybe i think we need to reflect that we we are changing the way that we talk but we get sometimes comments from students on stuff where i say whoa never thought about that and then you need to ask yourself do you take the discussion with with the student directly yes i try to do and try to find a solution and do a dialogue on that or do you wait until the SMS comes up or the, the, the WhatsApp group comes up? Yeah. So, or it's, yeah, it's, it becomes front page of the NZZ. Exactly, yeah. We are going to be heading out to Bangkok uh, in a moment. We're going to take a very short uh, break. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're back right after this. Have you got your hands on our sister magazine, Confect, yet? Well, you might also be interested in Confect Corner, our podcast accompaniment hosted by me, Sophie Grove, with Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak between London and Zurich. Join us each month for stories on travel, fashion and craft and drinking and dining across Europe and beyond. Episode one is available now where we discuss the art of scent, celebrate the sanctuary of the bathroom and meet the designers Paula Gabez and Kazu Hugler. I'm not interested in producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested in the person who is going to wear it. Subscribe at confectmagazine.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Just gone at 10.51 uh, here in Zurich, heading to Bangkok now to speak to our correspondent uh, in the Thai capital, Gwen Robinson, is there. We haven't had an update in a while, Gwen. Uh, ha fantastic to have you on the program. Sawadika, very, uh, very nice to hear from you. Sawadika, it has been a while. Tell us, uh, <laughs> you're still there, we're still here, but very much looking forward to, to getting to Thailand as, as soon as possible. Uh, tell mm. us, uh, if I was to flip open uh, the, the bank, or at least to glance at the front page of the Bangkok Post this morning, uh, flip on uh, one of the Thai channels, uh, what's making news there? Well, uh, I guess, uh, you know, for political mavens, uh, there's at last uh, news that there will be uh, 
one of the first proper elections since uh, the, actually the coup uh, so many years ago, um, the Bangkok governor race, which uh, a lot of people have been um, eyeing for some, well, actually since last year. So finally, we've just heard that the uh, the city will go to the polls uh, on May the 22nd, and that has um, that seems to have put a, a rocket under a, an otherwise slightly murky and messy political landscape that we've been dealing with for the last many months. And Gwen, what will that mean? Because oftentimes, you know, when, if, you, if you look at other uh, major Asian capitals, you know, the road to governorship or being the mayor of the capital or, or certainly an economic powerhouse is often, uh, of course, you know, sometimes it's a fast track, of course, uh, to having, of course, you know, the top seat uh, in government on a national level. Does it often play out uh, that way in Thailand as well? Yeah, that's a really good point, Tyler. We have seen it right through Southeast Asia, notably uh, uh, Jokowi in Indonesia, who was uh, famously uh, uh, governor of Jakarta. But um, in Thailand, it doesn't really seem to work that way. Although, actually, Bangkok is such a, um, a huge part of it's one of. I think uh, Thailand must be one of the most centralised um, countries where uh, the nerve centre is really. Bangkok and being the governor is in itself a powerful position, but there isn't much, doesn't seem to be, need to be much mobility uh, getting to the very top seat. Mind you, there's been some quite famous governors and um, this race is particularly significant because there was a coup in 2014 and since then there has not really been a problem. There have been by-elections, but I think this is the first proper full-on election. There's been a couple of years of lockdown and now Thailand is still struggling with the sort of uh, backlash of uh, COVID. <coughs> Excuse me, I haven't got it. <coughs> I haven't got it. <laughs> That's you, 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 you brought a bit of coughing fit in the studio here as well. Anyway, it's fine. We're all, we're all, we're all at a safe distance anyway, from everyone on radio. So we're all on. Uh, yes, and I think, um, I think from earlier times here, you probably have come across uh, uh, the person who is looking like, already looking like a winner, who is... Um, Chat Chat Sidipun. He was the former transport minister in the ousted uh, Yingluck government uh, some years ago, and he is making a big comeback as an independent. And uh, he's already topping early polls, uh, and it looks like um, you know he's got a lot of momentum already. Various others are coming out to declare, including the incumbent governor, who's a former police chief appointed by the the uh, former military junta. Uh, in 2016, and then various others, including, uh, you know, the the party of uh, Tanaton, uh, the famous founder of the party um, Future Forward, which was uh, dissolved but went on to reform itself. So uh, I think so far we've got about eight candidates, and I think there will be quite a lot of interest in this election. Not that Bangkokians have ever been, you know, really into the whole electoral process and uh, certainly Bangkok does not reflect the vast majority of the country which you could say is safely probably easily two-thirds you know farmers rural and also quite poor Bangkok is full of uh, elites and uh, often dominated by the Democrats the yellows and uh, uh, middle and upper middle classes. 
Gwen, uh, I was uh, coming back from uh, L.A. Um, a couple of weeks ago. It was interesting talking to uh, the the person, the maitre de cabine, who was running uh, running the flight, and they were saying that Bangkok flights, you know, out of out of Switzerland, and I think for a lot of the for much of their their aviation group, uh, were absolutely packed, rammed um, with with people flying mm-hmm. in. We're expecting another round of uh, restrictions to be to be lifted uh, as well. And I guess does that get Thailand to a place of almost being one of the most uh, normal nations in terms of uh, yeah, get, getting back to where, where we were t- two years ago. Well, indeed. I mean, Thailand has actually turned itself around even a year ago when they tried to open up and uh, made huge uh, botch up of, uh, of their entry procedures, including launching a website, which didn't seem to work. And you had a lot of frustrated people trying 10 times and giving up. And entry procedures were not coordinated and were terribly um, confused. Uh, they've turned it around brilliantly and probably have become, I would say, they're pretty well close to a model for the region in terms of a controlled but uh, fairly flexible entry procedure. And they have finally, we've just heard that uh, the government's decided to drop this very onerous requirement for all travellers to Thailand to take a pre-travel COVID test that has to be uploaded to a website uh, in their home country. And then again on arrival, check into a hotel for one night and then go back to the hotel on the fifth night to have another test. So um, two of those steps will be removed as of April the 1st and you only have to do a test on arrival and then do a self-test on the fifth uh, day, I presume, to upload. And uh, that has... uh, I think that has really encouraged a lot more people to consider coming to Thailand. But can I just add here, Thailand has lost two of its top tourist sources, and that is one is China, where, as you, I'm sure you've covered extensively, the Chinese tourists are not going to come flooding back for a long time yet. And, of course, now Russia. Mm. And uh, that's a big story here because uh, Phuket, uh, Koh Samui, uh, Pattaya, all these places very popular with wealthy Russians are um, now seeing some very unwealthy Russians who can't pay their hotel bills stranded, uh, not able to use their credit cards or draw on their cash. And it looks like pretty well there's going to be a lot of trouble for Russian visitors to come to Thailand. Gwen, very quickly, Andrew Andrew Tuck is on the line. Andrew, sounds like a good story for us. Uh, I think Gwen's going to have to head down to Pattaya as well to see who's not paying their bills, correct? (laughs) Oh, that would be a tough assignment. It sounds like a good mission. Uh, Andrew, just very quickly, and we've got less than a minute. Uh, uh, when you hear about borders opening up in Thailand, are you already sort of drawing up uh, what's going to be your first editorial tour of the region? Well, it'd be great to get back out there again. And also, we, we, we met with the, the Korean embassy team here in London this week, and they were saying the same. It's, it's, they're trying to get back to business uh, as usual from April 1st. So there'll be no quarantine going into the country. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see the region up. Even James in, in Hong Kong said that there's some talk there that they may lessen the restrictions. We're going to have to leave it there. Gwen Robinson in Bangkok, uh, Andrew Tuck uh, in London, Juliet Lindley here, also Marcus Sugal as well. Uh, Emma Nelson, of course, was with us for the news today and also producing as well, as was Desiree Bandley and Marcus Hippie. Uh, Also, thanks to Gwen Robinson and Randy Vanderkamp uh, in Amsterdam. That's all for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. We're on our Nordic tour. We're going to be in Copenhagen, Oslo, uh, Stockholm and Helsinki. But I'll be back here next Sunday. Goodbye.